The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's episode, we welcome guest Alan Fogwell. Alan Fogwell joined the Petroleum Technology Alliance Canada, PTAC, in October 2021 as their Chief Operating Officer. He is an energy sector executive with over 30 years of experience in both the public and private sector. Mr. Fogwell's background has focused on economic, technological, and market analysis of energy sector issues, along with energy policy development related to climate change, regulation, and demand issues. Mr. Fogwell has previously worked with the Canadian Energy Research Institute for seven years as president and CEO. He has also worked with natural gas distribution companies in provinces British Columbia and Ontario, as well as the Ontario Energy Board, dealing with market analysis and the analysis of utility infrastructure approval and transmission distribution costs. Alan has a master's degree from Simon Fraser University in natural resources management and a bachelor's of science degree from the University of Saskatchewan in geography. He has also served as a chair and CEO of the Canadian Energy Efficiency Alliance and the Canadian Gas Research Institute. Mr. Fogwell is a 15-year veteran of the Canadian Forces in the Signal Corps. Now let's get into the episode with Alan. Welcome back, Dave and John. Good to be back. Nice to be back. And John, thanks for, I didn't know if you're coming back. So glad that you're, you're back with us. Yes, I'm back. Not a hundred percent fit, but I'm back in here. Very good. It's good to have you both back. And today we're joined by our guest, Alan Fogwell from the Petroleum Technology Alliance Canada. Welcome, Alan. Uh, hi, thank you very much for having me. So diving right into the episode, today's episode's about the current status of the oil industry in Canada. For our audience, can you frame and explain our oil industry, markets, transportation, products, in your role? Yeah, that's that's a lot to unpack, but let's just talk about them in sequence. So Canada has a, a, a very robust oil sector and it is composed of two parts. Uh, one is conventional oil and the other is unconventional or oil sands. And both parts go to serve various markets, including in Canada and primarily in the United States. Now, one key element associated with Canadian oil that affects our market activities is we produce a lot of heavy oil. And the difference between heavy oil and light oil is that heavy oil is uh, used much more for non-combustion products. So light oil would go into your gas tank or into your into a airplane, and heavy oil is used for you know lubricants and 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 making pavement and asphalt and plastics. So there's a there's a big difference between those two markets, and and it's often that we don't appreciate the differences of those of those markets. Now, so in, in terms of transportation, how the oil gets moved around. Canadian oil is landlocked uh, for the most part. Most of the onshore oil is produced in Alberta with some in Saskatchewan and British Columbia. And of course the offshore oil off the east coast of, of Newfoundland. And they move to markets differently. In the case of the offshore oil, they can move to any market in the world because they're 
fill up the, the tankers offshore, and then those tankers can go anywhere. And we do have a globally very robust market for oil, both light and heavy. If you're looking at onshore, the, the major transportation option is pipelines. And we've had a lot of debate about pipelines or new pipelines in Canada, but we do see at this point uh, a reasonable balance between the amount of capacity for transporting oil to the West Coast, as well as to the United States. There's also some transportation of oil back into Canada from the U.S., and this is um, uh, U.S. oil into Central and Eastern Canada. So we have a very complex market. Much of the oil and oil-based products for Western Canada is served by Canada, and much of the products for Ontario eastward are served by other jurisdictions. The U.S. is number one. Other importers include Kazakhstan and Norway, and to a lesser extent, Russia. Okay, so Alan, that's that's a lot, like you say, to unpack. And and uh, I've known Alan for for some time, and and has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the energy industry. And I mean all parts of the energy industry. But can you describe what your current position is and your role, the way it's set up right now? Sure. As was mentioned at the beginning, I'm with the Petroleum Technology Alliance Canada. My background is in energy economics, but here I'm focused on clean tech. So this alliance, which is made up of, of oil companies and, and service providers, is investing uh, significant dollars in developing new technologies to reduce the oil sector's environmental footprint. And we do that through multiple approaches. One is looking, of course, at emissions, CO2, and in particular right now, another is looking at biodiversity and how, how to minimize the impacts of biodiversity when a site is producing and how to eliminate those long-term impacts after the site is closed. Water management, quality and quantity, the retirement and and closure of wells and also general reclamation and remediation activities. So the industry has recognized this for a long time. In fact, our organization has been around for 25 years. So the oil sector has been working on these environmental issues for an extremely long period of time and developing new techniques, new business practices, working in conjunction with government and regulators to continually reduce the environmental uh, footprint of oil and gas activities in Canada. Follow-up question is when you look at Canada's government requirements on the oil industry, are we pretty stringent and doing more activity in comparison to other countries around the world to help clean up the oil sector? That's an emphatic yes. In fact, we're probably the leading jurisdiction in certain areas. One of them, of course, being in, in methane management and reduction. As you might know, there is a federal government policy which the provinces have got equivalency agreements for the 45% reduction in methane emissions in the oil and gas sector by 2024. And the sector is well on its way to achieving that. And in fact, at this point, they're looking beyond that already to the, the stated policy goal, although it's not in regulation yet, of a 
5% reduction by 2030. The, the reduction by uh, 2024 will be complete. It has been, you know, some challenge for, for the development of these new business processes and new technologies, but they're in place now. In fact, PTAC has facilitated the development of technologies and business processes that can reduce those methane emissions by 48%. And we're well on our way to deploying and adopting those. And now we're focusing on how do we go further than that? So, so the sector quite far ahead compared to other jurisdictions. So yeah, I don't think as Canadians, we actually tell the, the market the stuff that we're doing. I think if we could engage and make people more aware of the activity that we're doing in this field, it might certainly assist in our marketing of products and certainly even internally how how we're advanced in that work. As far as, Alan, the, the, the importance of the oil industry, like how, how would you claim or not claim, how, what, what impact does the oil industry have on the Canadian economy based on your view? It's, it's very large for an individual sector. We're looking at upwards of 10% of GDP that's, that's related to oil and gas activities, which is huge for one sector to represent that large part of the economy for any economy. And of course, but Alberta, for example, it's, it's much larger than, than that. But as an overall economy, it's, it's 10% roughly. And it's even larger when we talk about the export market because a lot of the oil that we produce goes to other jurisdictions, most of the United States. But, you know, with some of the changes in the heavy oil market in particular, the reduction in capacity in Mexico and Venezuela, that means there's an even higher demand for Canadian heavy oil going into the United States. Now, we're recording this session just in the midst of the Ukraine-Russian battle war, per se. There's an embargo going on now with Russian oil. I'm curious, based on your lens, how you see this playing out for Canada. Will there be, because there'll be less Russian oil being imported from other countries, is there an opportunity for Canada to fulfill some of that and you know with the idea of it's being ethically produced is there an opportunity for canada to capitalize to f to fill that void well it's it's definitely a terrible situation and can't imagine how people over in ukraine are feeling these days given that their country and their cities are under siege that so seems a little bit trite to talk about a separate market but be that as it may canada doesn't really have a lot of additional capacity to ramp up either in terms of production. Production would actually could ramp up if, if it was required, but we don't have the takeaway capacity. We don't have you know, additional pipeline capacity to take Western Canadian oil to other markets. One of the things that the industry was looking at a few years ago was the Energy East pipeline. And that was to repurpose a couple of uh, long distance natural gas pipelines to oil pipelines. So it wouldn't even be a new pipeline route, it'd just be a, a refurbishment of that pipeline. And that would have taken Western oil to central Canadian markets. <clears throat> but as it stands right now, we that is not in place. There's been some expansion of the takeaway capacity from Western Canada into the United States, but 
nowhere near the roughly 10 million barrels a day that the the international market will face with respect to boycotting if they do ultimately boycott uh, Russian oil. There is some spare capacity in in the OPEC nations, probably two to three million barrels, which is not enough to make a difference. If Iran came back into the international market, there may be one to two million barrels there. And although the major uh, economies are talking about releasing oil from their strategic oil reserves, they're only talking about releasing 60 million barrels in total. And yet the world consumes 100 million barrels plus a day. So you can see where that 60 million barrels is not gonna make much of a difference. What does that mean for us? It means higher prices for oil and gas. And that's really the only way we're gonna get around that at this point. If you have higher prices, of course, you subdue demand and, and you're able to bring the market back in balance. These markets don't move that quickly. They never have, and they never will. When we have excess supply, we, we store it, and then it can respond to demand. But at this point, we are not looking at excess supply. We're looking at five to seven years of underinvestment in oil and gas production because of a variety of reasons. So that means our markets and our infrastructure are not there uh, to serve the demand that we're seeing across the globe. So short, short answer to your question is, we're not gonna be doing much more than what we're doing right now in terms of production, and we are gonna see higher prices. And for how long that lasts? Well, that depends on the conflict going on now between Russia and Ukraine. Right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? Would uh, a reduction in our usage as a result of this be sustained after the conflict ends? My experience with uh, fuel shortages in the past is that we tend to hunker down for the short term. We get through a, a supply issue like this, and then there's a rebound afterwards. So I'm, I'm not really, you know, it's as you as you've started out with this. This is a horrific situation, and it's one, perhaps in a way, because it's connected with energy supplies. It's good because it's making everybody, a lot more people, aware of what's going on. Perhaps if it wasn't so strategic in those terms, we, we wouldn't be discussing it uh, as much as we are. I'd like to, to sort of move back on to talking about Canadian oil and gas and its carbon footprint. And a, a lot of observers regard it as being, you know, a higher carbon oil. Some some people even refer to Canadian oil as being dirty oil. And I'm thinking that's probably a misconception. but I'm an external observer, you know, from somebody on the inside. How do you respond to that? Well, as I said before, the industry has been working for, for many years, decades, really, in terms of trying to reduce its environmental footprint. And, and a high priority within that overall environmental footprint is, is emissions, so CO2 and methane in particular. <clears throat> and methane is, of course, a, a very significant greenhouse gas, and the sector it is on track to meet the 45% reduction target by 2024. And there's no one else in the world that's doing this, no one. And we have the tools and the processes in place to find the solutions to get to 75% by 2030. 
Now, at what cost at this point? We don't know. But in terms of the the cost associated with getting to 45%, we're looking at you know upwards of five, maybe ten dollars per ton of CO2 equivalent. So we've got some very significant opportunities to do more in a shorter period. The emissions from the oil sands are higher than average for heavy oil, but the oil sands has been reducing their CO2 equivalent emissions by about one to one and a half percent in terms of intensity per year. And that's been going on for at least a decade. So there's there's activities in place to bring that down, not the least of which is the decarbonization of the electricity grid to feed into the oil sands activities. And that can significantly reduce our emissions. And you can see that in Western Canada, BC is is almost 100% zero emitting. Oil sands are, of course, are more much more focused on Alberta. Alberta has accelerated retirement of its coal plants and increased and is increasing the amount of wind and solar and natural gas in its system compared to coal. Saskatchewan is doing the same thing. And in addition to that, a number of provinces are looking at small modular reactors as a complete substitute for any emissions on the electricity grid. So the uh, the sector is is moving forward at reducing its emissions. Will it, all these emissions be be reduced to, to zero? Not likely. And that's where uh, we're the sector is also looking at uh, net zero pathway that includes carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And some of the major oil companies in in Western Canada have already started investing in these projects and opportunities to sequester uh, the carbon captured from various activities. Now the big trick is we're not going to be able to sequester or store everything, so we have to find another usable product for that carbon, and there's also work being done there. So net zero is definitely achievable, but zero is likely not. Yeah, I, I think your comment on zero, we, we, we have we have a thing, I, I feel uh, a few years ago, coal was the bad boy. And, you, you know, it was the, the negative poster child in climate change. I think we're now moving the folk, people are divesting from coal, much less is going on in that. I think it's now moving towards oil. But it, it did strike me that I, I don't know the best way of putting it, that the PR job that the Canadian oil industry does on itself is probably not as effective as it could be in as much that not many people know know what you're talking about. Well, I, certainly external observers don't know about it. And I think one of the things that impacted me when I, I visited um, Alberta, I picked up a book called Ethical Oil. And it was making the point that when you're looking at oil supplies, you shouldn't just be looking at things like the carbon and what else, but what else is associated with, with that oil. And in, funnily enough, if we're going to boycott Russian oil, that's an ethical thing that we're, we're doing there. Whereas Canadian oil comes from a sound, solid democracy. And, you know, you, you, if you're judging your oils, that's another way of looking at it, isn't it? Well, interesting, because I'm going to use an example from your comment there, and that is coal demand is actually going up. Yeah. Coal demand is going up right now. There's numerous plants being designed and built right now in, you know, major economies of the world, India and China. Yeah. Yes. Fair comment. Yeah. And the, 
the Asian fleet of of coal-fired generation, the average the average age of those plants is 10 years, and yeah. these plants are 40, 50, 60 year plants. So we're still not past coal. It's unlikely that we would move. Let's looking at it from a, a electricity perspective. It's unlikely we would move from coal to oil. It's much more likely we will move from coal to natural gas. Yes. Uh, because the the cost associated with natural gas is lower, generally speaking, than oil. And of course, it has fewer issues to deal with with respect to emissions. So when it comes to the markets, we're, we're, we have a lot of what I would call inaccuracies in, in discussions. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of debate about oil and gas and staying on it or getting off. And, you know, one of the, one of the elements that people talk about is electrification, right? And they, we can say that, you know, we can move off of oil for our transportation sector. Okay, that's fine. We still have to, to create or produce 50 to 60 million barrels a day for non-combustion products. So we're not going to move off oil and natural gas entirely. In addition to that, if you look at moving from the oil market to the electricity market to, to supply our transportation sector, that means you need to double and in some cases triple the size of your electricity grids. And that's only looking at well-established developed countries, high reliable electricity grids. We don't have that everywhere. People, I don't think, appreciate the fact that in a lot of other jurisdictions outside of North America and Europe, you get regular, regular blackouts and brownouts. So how do you keep your transportation sector as well as the rest of your uh, economy fueled with electricity when you're tripling the demand for it? And coming back to your original point about the messaging, there's a lot of debate out there with half the facts and at some point we need to have a mature debate and allow people to actually make their point and listen we don't listen to each other anymore which is kind of frustrating and really disappointing because there are ways that this sector oil and gas sector is bringing solutions to the table for this challenge we have in terms of climate change Furthermore, if you even look at the Paris Accord, which was drafted to reduce emissions, the Paris Accord in and of itself talked about one third of those emissions reductions coming from uh, net negative activities, carbon capture, utilization and storage. And we, so even in, in the, the idea of this, this global plan for reducing carbon emissions, we're still not talking about all the elements that are actually in the agreement. Because there's people saying, no, it can't be carbon capture, utilization and storage. It has to be the elimination of oil and gas with and then renewable electricity. So, thank you for that. And thank you for picking me up on my European North American view. Because the minute you started talking, it resounded with me on a project that I got involved in in the Philippines which was converting a boiler, a significant steam raising boiler plant from heavy oil to coal because 
of the coal supplies that are there. So mm -hmm. I think that is a very valid point. We tend to get a bit blinkered with where we are. But I want to pick up on something else, what you're talking about discussion. And it's it's something I, I observe in too many things today, in opinions. We seem to have to be binary. We're either for or against. You know, it's this or it's that. You know, this is good, that is bad. And in fact, in environmental solutions and sustainability solutions, there's a whole spectrum of answers. And yes. as you say, I think one of the problems is, is that, you know, we have a group here at the moment, Insulate Britain, who are actually super gluing their faces to the road to stop traffic going through. You know, you get these extreme views and any anything involved with fossil fuels is, you know, really bad to them. But, you know, you made the point there, and I think it's a really strong point that's often overlooked, how much of oil is actually a feedstock rather than a fuel. And, you know, you've got to look at what you do with that. So, yeah, thanks for the correction. It was a very valid one. And you're right, we, we've, we've got to, and it becomes increasingly difficult. We've got to look at these things far more in the round, haven't we? Yes, we do. And I mean, if you think about the UN sustainability goals, there's much more or, or many more goals than, than just reducing emissions. There's goals related to equity, there are goals related to gender balance, there, there are goals related to biodiversity, there are yeah. goals related to governance and, and, and a rule of law. There are, there are many, many goals, and, and yet we seem to be wanting to optimize for one. Now, is there a, a problem that we have to deal with? Of course there is, but we have lots of problems we have to deal with. And sure thing. Focusing on one to the exclusion of others is is going to get us a suboptimal outcome. And you th yeah, all you have to do is look at uh, a couple of examples, one in the energy sector and, and one more recently in terms of, of COVID, that not everyone has the same values. So if you look at the energy sector, a few years ago, France decided to increase the, the price of transportation fuels by a few few cents. And they had the yellow vest riots. A few cents. And if we're talking about an overall transition away from oil and gas, it's going to cost a lot more than that, right? Which is another thing we don't always, we don't hardly ever talk about how much things cost. We only talk about what we need to do and what technologies we need to do it with. So that's one example within the oil and gas sector where the value of reasonable price seems to outweigh the value of reduced emissions or tackling climate change. So how do you deal with that divide? In terms of COVID, it's an even more stark example of facts over emotions when we talk about the vaccine debate and yeah. people not wanting to get vaccines. Is that, a, is that a logical position or a factual position? From my read, and I'm not, I'm not a medical professional, but I've only been looking at it as a lay person, it looks like the facts are are highly in favor of the benefits of getting vaccinated. Yet there's a lot of people that won't do that. Are they wrong or do they have different values? I think that's a very good point. You're talking about all the challenges there. I hope a simple question. What is the what is the most challenging aspect of your work at the moment? I guess it is moving the the technologies to the implementation stage faster than it is happening now. Now, the sector right. is moving forward, 
but you know, in business in Canada as well as elsewhere, there's always a risk calculation. And un, if someone's not familiar with something, they'll tend to discount it more than they possibly more than they might if they knew more about it. So it's just getting the word out to not only the Canadian oil and, and gas sector, but also elsewhere that there are technologies out there. And in fact, uh, Canadian companies have been at the forefront of doing a lot of good work with respect to many different areas in terms of carbon capture, for example, the first big carbon capture activity in the world was in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, the government and the people of Saskatchewan created a, a major project that cost them a billion and a half dollars. And for the people of Saskatchewan, that's a, that's a big price tag. And, and they've developed a, a carbon capture technology that are now being used elsewhere. China's building a carbon capture, at least two carbon capture units in their jurisdiction that are 10 times the size of the one in Saskatchewan, but they're using the same technologies. We are well ahead of most other jurisdictions in terms of these technology solutions. We need to be as aggressive in terms of adopting them as well. Yeah, It's certainly the passion you can tell with the, how you talk of, of your not only knowledge, but the passion of, of what you do. But what is the most rewarding part of the work that you're currently doing right now? I think the most rewarding part is the synergy I see between government and the regulators and the industry. There's a, a large amount of integrity and people of goodwill working together to solve these problems. And it's all done behind the scenes. You know, part of going back to John's point about the message, you know, part of the message seems to be that the sector has got nefarious goals in mind, and it is completely opposite to that. There are highly credible people with a lot of integrity and a lot of innovation working together on all sides of the issue to move forward in the most cost-effective and efficient way possible. And if people were able to sit in on these meetings as I am able to do and see that goodwill and that trust and that working collaborative going forward, I think that's the best thing I've seen. And what it, what it tells me is we can meet this challenge. We can meet this challenge because we will work together. We don't work, it doesn't seem to be plastered on, on the media that way. It's, it's us versus them and, and you know, negative perspectives are implied uh, on the energy sector and, and it's completely opposite of that. We have people in those companies that are dedicated to fixing these, these challenges, rising to the occasion, and we have governments and regulators that are working with them to find the, the best approach possible. So being a rookie in the energy industry myself, especially in the oil industry, this was a great episode to listen in on. I want to mention a few of your points. So your emphasis on methane emissions is a great reminder for our listeners that although most targets outline carbon dioxide, we need to pay attention to other greenhouse gases and our targets there. So thank you for that reminder. Another point that I think is crucial, and I always talk to Dave and John about this, but moving to electrification is easy to claim but it requires a lot of work, which I think not many people realize. So for instance, saying let's go electric, but not understanding if there's required capacity, 
or what the emissions are associated with that electricity is important. And I think, you know, you mentioned electric grids in developed countries not being able to, you know, expand at the rate that electric demands are increasing. So that's actually exactly what my master's um, thesis is on. I'm working on the lack of grid supply for the greenhouse sector expansion in the Windsor-Essex area. And I'm looking at distributed energy resources like cogen, solar, batteries, et cetera. And that's just for one sector. So I can't even imagine, you know, the increase in demand from other sectors like EV vehicles, manufacturing, things like that. So I really thank you for bringing up those points because sometimes I think we think them, but we don't exactly outline them. So going off of that for our final question, what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners? The biggest takeaway is that net zero doesn't mean zero oil and gas. It means we are moving towards a system where oil and gas will be as clean as possible. But there are two other legs that are needed in order to help solve, or sorry, three other legs that are needed to help solve that problem. Electrify where you can. So it goes, what are the capacity limits? And when I'm talking about capacity, I'm talking about the availability of skilled labor, the uh, availability of money, and the availability of land. Think about some of our urban centers. Not only would we have to double or maybe triple the size of our generation and transmission grid, we have to go three to seven times the size of our distribution grids. We're already seeing distribution grids maxed out in some areas, including in my, my town here in Calgary, where you can get five or six electric vehicle chargers in your homes in a neighborhood, and that's it. You can't get any more because you've already strained the system. So electrification, Electrify where you can, minimize the emissions from oil and gas, ramp up carbon capture utilization, and I'm stressing that term utilization and storage, and that goes for post-combustion as well as direct air capture. And then finally, in order to manage all these costs, we need to have robust access to an international market for carbon equivalent trading, because it's going to be more expensive in some jurisdictions and more of the developed jurisdictions, and less expensive in other jurisdictions. So we need that to manage our costs. So we need all those four legs. Excellent way to conclude this episode. Thank you for your time today, Alan. Any final comments, Dave and John? Yeah, for our listeners, the things that caught my attention, I mean, there's so many facts, but I think Mm -hmm. most people, even in Canada, don't realize how much our oil is heavy oil that's used for non-transportation. I think Alan mentioned that and Truthfully, that was new to me. Uh, so that that's a pretty important thing that we need to be aware of. The other thing is it's great to hear, and I, I hope and wish not only this podcast, but that you know, the oil and gas industry is really focusing on reducing emissions and 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 probably, I think not probably, but Alan's suggesting it's more advanced than other jurisdictions. Again, I don't think we we tell the public about that stuff. A typical Canadian mentality we just keep it to ourselves we're uh, we're we're reserved people and but we're dedicated people and we're hard-working people and you know it's that humility may be a challenge for us to to get over and start to really get that message out i mean it, it's it's being worked on for sure but you know these days with uh, social media and the the lax standards in terms of reporting stories can get out into the broad public and go viral when they may not have any relation to the facts on the ground. 
Yeah, I, I thank you for that. I think it's difficult, always difficult to sort of come up with little comments at the end. But I think one of them, we talked about the this sort of binary situation. And I think the solution to that is we all have a duty to become better informed. Part of that is actually, and I think that younger people have got to grasp very much as well, not, not looking at you there, Lysandra, but is a lot of a lot of our facts today come via a soundbite, for want of a better word, in social media, and before somebody's even checked it, they've shared it with somebody, and that starts to give you know credence to whatever's out there. I mean, I do notice now that on social media, if it's about COVID or Ukraine, you may get a thing pop up saying, "Have you read this before you share it?" But I think I think we all have a duty to become better informed and perhaps to help inform others, which I hope we're doing through through this series of podcasts. I do as well, John. I do as well. I think that's the uh, that's actually our biggest challenge. Yeah. And just to, to end up with one other fact with with respect to how people view this debate in the media versus how people really feel. There's a group out of the University of Ottawa called Positive Energy, and they do a lot of survey work about people's trust in decision processes, policy development, and our activities around, you know, the evolving energy system, you know, in an age of, of climate change. And their surveys show that the majority of people in Canada are, are, are comfortable or are in agreement with doing what we can <clears throat> to improve our our oil and gas environmental position, but they are nowhere in terms of this binary, yes, oil, oil and gas, or no oil and gas. They're right in the middle, say, yes, well, let's do this in the best way possible, because it gives us other benefits as well. Food for soul. Yeah. Well, Alan, Dave, John, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Alan. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.